Yeah, so uh, we ended in the middle of chapter 2. And if you remember, up to this point, Luke has established a foundation for really the rest of what we'll read, the rest of the, of the, of the book of Acts, as he accounts initially um, recalling the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And it's from this foundation that Luke will account the things that took place through the Holy Spirit after Jesus had ascended into heaven. It's been said, not by me, but I've heard it said before that the book of Acts should really be called not the Acts of the Apostle, but the Acts of the Holy Spirit. I like that it makes sense as we see the Holy Spirit working through these men and women of the early church just like he does today. And as we look at the Acts of the Holy Spirit or what God did through the disciples and the early church apostles and, and, and um, uh, after Jesus' ascension, um, we'll see some really cool things. And I think cool things that we can apply to our lives and apply to our own church as we continue to see God's kingdom grow and, and our, our church grow as well. And last week as we made our way into chapter 2 and through verse 13, we read how Jesus' disciples had received that long-awaited for promise of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon them, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this promised event came to pass while the disciples were gathered together in Jerusalem. As we are told, they waited like they had been instructed and prayed for what Jesus had promised. And when the outpouring of the Holy Spirit came, he came with a, 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 what, what was to what it said was a loud sound, right? Like a mighty rushing wind, a sound that had come down from heaven. And this noise that was heard was so loud that it was heard by those who were down on the city streets, the crowds of people had joined, joined, um, uh, come from all over uh, uh, Israel and beyond for the feast to celebrate the feast of Pentecost. And following this noise from heaven, there was the appearance of lights that looked like um, divided tongues of fire, and they appeared above the heads of all of the disciples. And when these lights appeared, the disciples were empowered. As the Holy Spirit gave them utterance, we're told, to speak in other languages that could be understood by the different people who had come from all across the Roman Empire to celebrate there in Jerusalem. However, when these people heard the disciples speaking, we're told specifically they were speaking about the wonderful works of God in their own native tongues, some were amazed. Two different reactions we were told about. Uh, they, and they, these people were amazed, wanted to know what was happening while others mocked and sought to dismiss the things of God that they had heard and seen with their own eyes saying that the disciples, they, they must be drunk. So this morning as we finish chapter 2, what we're going to see as we read is Peter's response to these crowds who were, were asking, what, what does this mean? What, what could this mean? And through Peter, Peter's explanation, he bears witness of Jesus and, and, and bearing word, witness to Jesus, he calls the people to repentance. And as a result, 3,000 people were saved from hell, from eternal death, and the church that has endured for nearly 2,000 years that you and I are a part of today was born into existence. And so let's pray, and then we'll read through as we begin. And Father, I thank you that your, your, your work continues today in and through our lives and the lives of those around us who love you and serve you. And Father, we pray, God, that we, would, we want to continue to see you work in our lives, in our church, in our homes, in our community. God, we want to see you save people. We want to see people come to know you. We want to see people be set free from their sin. 
to have the joy of their salvation and the peace that, that only you can provide, Father. So I pray, Lord, that you would continue to do that work through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Peter's response, verse 14, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, speaking of the apostles, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what the this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Quote, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I'll pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above, in signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Verse 21, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear the words of Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. He being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and have put to death, whom God raised up, having loosened the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, and that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the way of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, that he would raise up the Christ to sit on the throne. He foreseen this, David foreseen this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption." This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let it be known all the house of Israel assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off as many as many as the Lord our God will call. So here it is. After receiving the promise of the Holy Spirit, Peter stands up. He stood up. 
with a loud voice with the rest of the apostles there by his side, and he became this bold witness for Jesus. And as we read the words of Peter spoken in these verses, it becomes evident to us, I think, that Peter has been changed as a result of this event in a very radical way. In fact, it's like Peter was a new man. Think about it. No longer was he denying Jesus, right? Three times before the rooster crows, hiding and cowering after Jesus' arrest. And no longer was he afraid of the, the little servant girls. Rather, Peter spoke boldly and courageously. And with this raised voice of confidence as he spoke the truth after receiving the power, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit had been promised. And this change in Peter is not something that should go overlooked. And I mentioned last week that with the feeling of the Holy Spirit, right, there are the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit that can be manifested through us. The empowering, God pouring himself into us, and then the outpouring, God through us as a result of being baptized and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Some manifestations of the gifts of the Spirit. And this is evident in this account that we read through last week with the disciples speaking in, in other languages, right, that weren't their own that others might understand. And I pointed out that the, the gift of tongues is just one of many gifts of the Holy Spirit that is mentioned throughout Scripture that can be manifested and should be, be being manifested through us. But the manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit is not the extent of the supernatural things that take place with the empowering or feeling of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the power of the Holy Spirit is not just a power that works through us it's also power that works in us, and I would suggest to you that it is a power that has to work in us before it can work through us in a way that God went, would want. And as I explained briefly last week, the fact that Peter is now able to stand boldly and be this unashamed and fearless witness for Jesus is also a supernatural act of God. And fortunately for us, it's the same work of God that continues to work in us as we are also empowered or filled with the Holy Spirit, the power of God, to be ultimately, right, living witnesses of Jesus. That's what Jesus said. Wait for the power of the Holy Spirit, for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where you'll be filled with from power on high so that you might be my witnesses. Jesus told his disciples what would happen, and he told it why it would be happening, to be witnesses. And another amazing example, I think, of this transforming power of God that works in us is seen with the Apostle Paul. Think about it. He was known by the early church as a man who hunted Christians, right, in order to arrest them and to have them put to death. And Paul experienced this same inner change. And, 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 and we know that those followers of Jesus that Paul went to after his conversion, they could hardly believe what they were seeing, that Paul was now a follower, and a witness of Jesus. And Paul wrote about this transforming power of the Holy Spirit that works in us so that it might work through us in his letter to the, to the Galatians. Galatians 2, verse 8, he says this, For the Holy Spirit, who worked effectively in Paul for the apostleship to the Hebrews, to the circumcised, also worked effectively, he says, in me to the Gentiles. And it's this empowering of the Holy Spirit that works effectively in us to enable us to walk the Christian walk. It's this power that equips us to live like Jesus lived and to bear that spiritual fruit that we talked about last week, right? Love, joy, peace, goodness, goodness and kindness and faithfulness. As we follow the example that Jesus has given us, what is that? The example of servanthood, the example of selflessness, 
Try to do that on your own. That only, you know, being a servant only lasts if we're doing it in our own strength um, as, as uh, it only lasts until someone treats us like a servant. Have you ever had that happen to you? You get, you get checked really quick about, was this something you were trying to do or something that God was doing through you? It's like, don't you treat me like a slave? I'm not your servant. Well, wait a second. Or, or when, when you're being selfless and someone takes advantage of that. But yet when it's through the power of the Holy Spirit, not in our own strength, but in His strength, those things don't prevent us or stop us from being servants or being selfless like Jesus was. In light of this, it's worth pointing out that Christianity is unique in many ways from every other religion, but it's, it's unique from all of the religions in that all of the religions, they have a set of moral codes or standards. They all do, and they all tell people that they should live good lives, but they don't offer any help or any power to do so. And Christianity also has a call, we know, to live pure and holy lives. God says, be holy as I'm holy, to walk in such a way that pleases God. But Christianity alone offers the power through the baptism and the filling of the Holy Spirit to enable us to answer this call. And this is what is exampled here through Peter's life that we're reading with, about with this inward change that is, that is seen here. And it's what's still taking place currently in the lives of those of us who are empowered and baptized by the Holy Spirit. But listen, according to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, this is something that needs to be continually happening. We need to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit as God cleanses us on the, cleanses us on the inside so that we can walk in purity, so that we can proclaim the truth boldly and be these witnesses, these godly witnesses of really a pure and holy God to those around us. And so as we look at Peter's words, being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, standing up with a loud voice, speaking to the crowd of people. Think about this, the same people who had called for Christ's crucifixion just 50 days earlier. As we consider this, what we are seeing, Peter says, as our eyes are on him and people are saying, what's going on? Peter speaks to these people and says, what you are seeing is what God said would come to pass. He says, specifically, that which has been spoken of by the prophet Joel. And as Peter begins to explain what God had promised, he first refutes this silly allegation of the disciples being drunk and, and said they were not drunk, as some had said, because it was only the third hour, literally nine in the morning. And then Peter continues to present a very rational explanation to the people for what the crowds had just heard and what they had just seen by taking them back to God's Word, by referring to God's Word, and he quotes from the prophet Joel. In doing so, I believe what we see here going on is an example of an important truth in that God's Word must be the basis for all that we believe. It must be the basis or the foundation for all of our Christian practices. In light of this, we should ask ourselves, why do we do what we do as Christians or even here in this church in our lives as we attach the name of God to it? Why do we do what we do? And is there a biblical mandate, a biblical command, a, a biblical instruction or directive for it? Growing up as a part of a church that there were many things that weren't in God's word that we were commanded to do because it was instructions from church leaders. 
or handed down from, from, from generation to generation as a tradition. And yet that's not a good enough reason when it comes to what God's word says for why we do what we do. Is there a biblical mandate? Has it been commanded? Has it been instructed? Is there a directive for it? Remember, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 tells us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. All Scripture is profitable for doctrine, meaning we can and we should build a solid and reasonable faith upon the Word of God. Furthermore, please hear this. Experience and tradition alone does not offer a solid basis for faith. And if we determine that one of our Christian practices or something that we've come to believe in, either corporately or individually, is not in accordance to what God's Word says, you know what we need to do? We need to forsake it. And if we can't defend what we believe, right, when people go, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Why do you do that? If we can't defend or answer what we believe or what we do in the name of God with what God's Word says, then we should stop. We shouldn't be doing it. The Apostle Peter, who speaks here, also confirms this very thought process in his second letter to the churches in 2 Peter, saying this. It's five verses. I'm going to read it to you, 16 through 21. Follow with me because we're going to break it down. It says, He says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter's referring to the transfiguration there on the mountain. He said, for he, Jesus, received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, he said, which came down from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. Here is the second part of that. It's referring to the word of God with what he saw and what he witnessed and what he heard. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. He says, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the dawn days and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So let's break it down, because here what I see is that Peter is telling us that he did not follow after cunningly devised fables, literally cleverly invented stories. He says, but with my own eyes, I saw Jesus in his majesty, and I heard with my own ears God's voice testify to who Jesus is. However, in 2 Peter, we're being challenged by the things that Peter has written here to not rest or trust in the testimony of his eyewitness testimony of his experience alone by speaking to the fact that Scripture, the prophetic word of God, which was given by God, is what testifies and validates his experience to be the truth. In other words, Peter is saying, don't believe me alone. Check it out in light of what God's Word says. And again, experience alone is not a solid basis for our faith. Our experiences alone or someone else's experiences alone are not a basis for faith alone. 
And I believe that one of the greatest things about Calvary Chapel is that as a fellowship of believers, not just ours, but the greater communion and fellowship of, of, of the believers of the Calvary Chapel movement, one of our, our core distinctives is expository teaching for these very reasons. In that we teach the Bible in context, line upon line, chapter upon chapter, precept upon precept. And, and, and there's a safety net in that, that we're building our faith. We're living our lives upon what we read. And, and I'll say that there are other great Bible teaching churches out there besides Calvary Chapel that follow that same model. We're not the only ones. Nevertheless, I'll say this, that the teaching of God's word must be done with a call to believe it. Do you believe it? Where you rely upon, cling to, and trust your life as you build your life upon what God's Word says and then seek the application of it to our lives. And so God's Word is the foundation for everything that we do corporately. And the Word of God needs to be what we build our lives upon. And if people come to us and ask, what is this that we're doing and why it is that we're doing it, we must be able to answer like Peter and say, we believe this because God's word says this, and we're doing this because God's word says to do it. Or we don't do this because God's word says don't do it. And when Peter referred to what God had said as he spoke to these crowds of people, we see that he quoted from the Old Testament, the prophet Joel. You can find it in the book of Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. He says, this is the scriptural reference this is what God had spoken of and said would take place, and this is what you see taking place. These are the things that would come to pass, he said, in these last days. And because of what we read here and also what we read in Hebrews chapter 1, the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, in the very first two verses who it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in the past to our fathers by the prophets, has in these last days, these last days, do you get that? has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And I think we can accurately discern and conclude that these last days began 2,000 years ago on the day that we're reading here at the birth of the church. And knowing that these last days have been going on now for nearly 2,000 years, I think it gives us greater reason to believe today that we're living in the latter times of these last days. That's exciting to me. The latter times of these last days. And what that means is that Jesus' return is near. Furthermore, I believe based upon what we read in the Bible and the study of end times prophecy, I wish I could go into it all this morning. It's an exciting thing for me to teach on. Um, but, but without doing that, but what I read and what you read and what you know about prophecy is that Jesus could come back at any time and bring to close this time that we are now living in. And I believe that very soon we'll see the rapture of the church and what we read here that Peter speaks about with the great and awesome day of the Lord come to pass and God's judgment ultimately at that time being poured out upon this world. As a result, my encouragement to us would be this. Live expectantly. Remember Jesus said that His return would be unexpected. Live this way so that we will be prepared and ready for His return at any time given time. I was walking through the parking lot at the church today, and maybe this is because I'm fresh in my heart for this morning's message, but nobody was here. And I always get this, I always get this weird feeling sometimes. It's like, why is nobody here? And I get left behind. 
And, and it's just, but, you know, it passes, and I'm just like, I'm just excited because someday it's going to be like that. We're going to be caught up out of here. There will be no more cars in the parking lots. The church, the church seats will be empty. I think they'll be refilled by those who will be left behind who will realize that they missed it and repent and call out upon the name of the Lord. It won't be too late for them, I don't think. But it's a, it's, a, it's a good thing to think of. And at the end of this prophetic passage from the book of Joel, Peter quotes this, look at verse 21. And what, he, what we see here by what we read in verse 21 is that this message that continues on into our day-to-day, it's a matter of life and death. We use that, that terminology all the time. It's a matter of life and death. And we do that maybe even in a, in a, in a, with hyperbole at times to express of how great important something is, but this is truly a matter of life and death. And he says this alongside that, eternal life and eternal death, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved from the judgment that will come at the end of these last days. And Peter, who is empowered with the Holy Spirit, uses this truth as a springboard to preach and proclaim that Jesus of Nazareth is this long-awaited Lord that you need to believe on and call out to. The Messiah who was sent by God and who had been prophesied about by the prophets. And with that, in verse 22, there's this call. Men of Israel, hear these words of Jesus of Nazareth. And when Peter began back in verse 14, look over at verse 14 again. He said this, let it be known to you. And he called them with this life and death matter that he was talking about to take heed to his words. And a similar call to now pay attention is here in verse 22. As Peter pleads with the people saying, men of Israel, hear these words, making it clear to the crowds of people that he had something of great importance to tell them. And so recalling Jesus' unjust crucifixion, right, that they had been witnesses to, Peter challenged them to consider what they already knew about Jesus. But then he begins to preach to these men of Israel by making this radical statement. This radical statement about Jesus of Nazareth saying he's alive. You saw him crucified, and he says, I'm here to tell you he's alive. He could not be held by the grave. He is risen from the grave. His soul did not stay in Hades, and his flesh did not see corruption. And when Peter testified later on at the end of this verses that we read just now, in verse 36, look, he testified that God had made this Jesus of Nazareth, both Lord and Christ. When he says this, he's directly referring back to the words of the prophet Joel. Here in verse 21, that says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus of Nazareth shall be saved. And in doing so, Peter is presenting this path of salvation. And is rightly saying Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension all happened in fulfillment of the Scriptures. According to what King David had explained about God's Holy One, the Messiah. And once again, Peter is using the same methodology, using Scripture to quantify and qualify his declarations by referring to the words of King David, which would have been very familiar to these Hebrew people. Quoting from Psalm 16, verses 8 and 11, and Psalm 110, verse 1. And if you look at verse 29 here, where it says, Men and brethren, let me speak to you freely of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He's reminding the, cl- the crowd <coughs> excuse me, that of David's death and of his burial to point out the fact that David was not and could not be writing about himself 
in the instance of this passage of Scripture because why? He's dead, and he's in a tomb. They knew where David's tomb was. But he, David, being both a king and a prophet, was in fact prophesying into the future with these words about the coming of the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one who was promised down to come through David's descendants. But more importantly, as Peter connects the prophetic docs that we're reading here, he explains through Scripture to these Hebrew people the eternal purpose for the coming of the Messiah, saying that it was necessary for Jesus, who was attested by God, proven by God through the miracles and the wonders and the signs. He says it was foreordained for him to die and to be raised from the dead. Here's the eternal message so that they might receive forgiveness of sins by turning away and calling upon the name of Jesus, who is the Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, the anointed one of God. And you know, when we think about the bigger picture of it, this message here was intended to answer a lot of questions and, 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 and offer some explanation to the Hebrew people at this time. Remember, they were looking for the Messiah to come. They knew the prophecies. They were praying for a deliverer. But they were looking for the deliverer at this time to set up his kingdom upon the earth and to rule and reign upon the earth and set them free from the oppression of the Roman Empire. But they had missed the eternal reason for the coming of the Messiah that Peter was now explaining to them because they were so focused on earthly things. And because God is gracious, He gives everyone multiple opportunities to receive the truth, and he's doing it once again here, and maybe he's doing it again for you today. Another opportunity to hear and receive the truth. And Peter speaks the truth in verses 36 through 39, saying, Therefore, let it be known to the house of Israel, assuredly God who has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And he died to make payment for your sins, Peter says. And he offers to you and your children, all who call upon his name, this promise of redemption, this promise of forgiveness, and this feeling of the Holy Spirit, this empowering of the Holy Spirit, and you be changed on the inside, that God may work in you and through you, that was foretold of by the prophet Joel. He says that you now see being poured out upon us. And I think it's important to point out, look back to verse 22, that Peter, through this There's a map here being laid out for us. Peter, to begin with in verse 22, he kind of summed up the life of Jesus, right? He's referring to him, and he says, this is what you know about him. They had seen his crucifixion. They'd heard about his signs and wonders, and probably had even seen some of them with their own eyes at that time when Jesus was alive. So he sums up the life of Jesus in verse 22. And then 23, Peter talks about the death of Jesus. And we see he doesn't pull any punches as he held those in the crowd accountable to what they had done, what they had partaken of. And then in verse 24, Peter speaks of the resurrection and the power of Jesus that he has over death. And I think it's important to look at this in that light and kind of sum it up in this way because it's an example for us of this very important truth to always Keep Jesus as the center of our message. There's lots of times that I'm witnessing with people or they want to sit down and talk and they want to speak about their philosophy or their ideologies regarding spirituality and, 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 and religion. And, and anymore, I'll listen. I don't even argue with them anymore. I tell them about Jesus. I tell them about what God's Word says. I tell them about the gospel message. 
I tell them about their need to repent, bring up their sin, and tell them that there's hope for them. See, Jesus needs to be the center of a message, and this is how God would have us proclaim the good news message of Jesus. And so Peter, he delivers, we see this, I love this, no candy-coated, seeker-friendly, watered-down gospel message. It is a message that Peter spoke which proclaims Jesus as Lord and Savior and confronts our, 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 our greatest need to turn away from our sin. This is the message that needs to be preached today. It's the type of message which offends our pride. And we in, our, in the church today, we've fallen prey to this societal message of let's not offend anyone. The gospel message is an offense to our pride. It offends our self-centeredness. It offends our sinful ways. And it calls us to humbly turn to Jesus and receive Him as our Redeemer and as our Savior. This is what we need to be preaching It's a message that we, the church, have been entrusted with that we've dropped somehow along the way and brought in another gospel message. And Paul would say there's not another, but there's others floating around out there that are perversions and abominations. And this is the reason we need to preach this message is because this is the only message that can save souls. This is the only message that can change lives. This is the only message that can offer eternal hope and everlasting peace. It's this message that cuts to the heart and causes us to call out saying this very same thing. What then must we do to be saved from the great and awesome day of the Lord? Fortunately for us, the answer to this question is the same as it was back in the day when Peter was preaching to these Hebrew people. There's nothing left that we need to do. What must we do? It's all been done. The Christian faith in, and the hope of salvation it offers is not based upon what we do, but it's based upon what you know or who you know. And Jesus of Nazareth, I know him. <laughs> do you know him? Who rose from the dead, he is who we need to know. This Jesus of Nazareth cried out upon the cross before he died saying, it is finished. He said, it's paid in full for you. Meaning that as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection, there's now no payment left to be made. Nothing left for us to do except call upon his name like the prophet Joel says. Believe that he's the son of God. Turn away from sin. Repent. Today this is the message that is often proclaimed. Excuse me. Today this message is, is often proclaimed, I would say, with, with maybe, let me just put it this way. I don't want to judge it completely, but I'll just say this. It's presented from the pretense, this pretense, that Jesus did awesome things for us, giving us his life, giving up his life for us, and now we should give our lives to him. And you go, what's wrong with that? Well, nothing in and of itself. That statement is true. In fact, I proclaim that gospel message in that context many different times because Scripture tells us, does it not, that it's God's loving kindness that leads us to repentance and that we love Him because He first loved us and He gave His life for us. And all of this is true. Jesus has died in our place, giving up His life freely so that we might live. Jesus took upon Himself all of our sins and gave to us His righteousness and bore our punishment so that we could live. But after reading here what Peter says and how he says it, 
we should see this, that the pretense of God's love demonstrated to us needs to be, but seldom is, needs to be delivered along this fact, this truth, that we will go to hell without accepting Jesus. Some people would say that's an unloving thing to say. I say it's an unloving thing to not say it. That you will go to hell if you don't believe in Christ. If you don't turn away from your sins by surrendering your life to Jesus into his hands. If you do not do this, Peter says it here. It needs to be part of the message. It is the gospel message. It's the bad news. Next to the good news, there's a place of eternal judgment and torment that is waiting for those who do not believe. And this is what Peter wished for his fellow Hebrew brothers and sisters to know. And guys, it is what I wish for us to know. In light of the love of God that is shown to us and the free gift of forgiveness that God offers to us, this morning I want to be sure that you know where you are going once you pass into eternity. Verse 40. And with many other words, he, Peter, see, he's, he's, he's got a lot of things to say. Many other words. I know he went on for a long time. He exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in the fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now, Verse 44, all who believed were together and they had all things in common and they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. About two or three times a week, in our daily mail here at the church, I get any number of different, what I would say, junk mail. Just I look at it, I throw it away. Pamphlets, um, just on and on. Stuff that, I mean, even from fixing the, how to get your roof fixed to, to, to how to grow your church. And I'm telling you what, there's, there are thousands of programs and books and seminars and podcasts that I get invited to over the years, about how to grow your church. Men's ideology and philosophies and, and things they're asking that. And, and I'm not saying they're all bad, but it's just it, the market for it is, must be huge. I, I, I've never subscribed to any of that. I never will subscribe to any of that. When we have our pastor's conferences, we don't talk about church growth. Matter of fact, one time another church was asking Calvary Chapel pastor, I don't remember what, the, the, who it was or what it was, that they're sharing it with me. He's like, what do you guys do at your pastor's conferences, your national pastor's conferences? He's all, we read and study God's Word. He's all, you what? Yeah, that's what we do. We, we go through a book of a Bible together, read and study God's Word. You don't talk about church growth or about programming, and it's like, no, we don't do that at Calvary Chapel. I heard, it, I heard, I heard a saying once in relationship to church growth. Um, you can either be a mushroom that springs up quickly and dies just as quickly, or you can be an oak tree that glows, grows slowly but will flourish as it endures and weathers the test of time. I personally desire that this ministry be like an oak tree in light of that statement. 
And I believe this is what God has done is continuing to do with this fellowship. Wife and I moved here February of 96. And we planted the church in our living room with two other couples. And it's been a process, slow growth. But we have deep roots. And we've weathered a lot of storms. And it's only by the grace of God that we're still here today, but it is the work of God that continues. And we reach into our community in ways that is profound through this little church. And I personally desire that as we see this, that this would be our continued church growth program. What do I mean? What we read here at the end of this chapter. Let me sum it up for you. If you're taking notes. Livingstone Calvary Chapel Church Growth Program. Let us, as the disciples had done, continue daily with one accord in the Apostles' Doctrine. Teaching and reading and studying the Word of God, the Apostles' Doctrine. Let us continue daily in prayer. Let us continue to break bread from house to house. Let us continue to have gladness and simplicity of heart. Let us continue to praise God and have favor or a good testimony with those around us. Lastly, let us continue to allow the Lord as He sees fit, as He sees fit, to add to our church daily by those who are being saved. Debbie, if you and the worship team want to come up we'll close with this it's not please hear this it is not the work of the church to grow or to increase its size it's our work as we continue steadfast in these things to do pretty simple stuff open our mouths it's our work as we continue steadfast in these things, this Livingstone Calvary Chapel church growth program, to open our mouths and proclaim Jesus to be Lord, to be His witness. And my prayer is that, that the words of God that we speak to the men and women around us, that they too would cut their way into their hearts and that they would be saved. My prayer for us this morning is that we all would know for sure that we are not going to spend eternity in hell. But I'm here to tell you, if you've not received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've not called out to Him for forgiveness for your sins, I pray that you would not delay any longer, that you would secure for yourself a place in paradise for eternity there with Him. Romans 9, chapter 10, excuse me, verses 9 through 11 says this, it says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For Scripture says this, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And Father, we thank you, God, for these simple truths that we can build our lives upon. And I pray for anyone here this morning that has not yet responded to the truths that are here in your word about who you are, about what you've come to do, about what waits after this life for those who reject you and for those who receive you. I pray as this truth is brought forth again that people would respond. And if that's you here this morning, if, if you have not responded and received Jesus as your Lord, that you would take this time to just pray to him, to ask him, 
Confess him as your Lord. Receive him as your Savior. Repent of your sins, and you too will be saved. Lord, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.